Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. All right. First, let's have a sip of reading tea. Hmm. Oh, that is really good tea. Dang. Hmm. And then let's get back into it for Mina's side of what's been happening. Not side. Mina's portion of what's been happening. The poor dear lady shivered, and I could see the tension of her nerves as she clasped her husband closer to her and bent her head lower and lower still on his breast. Then she raised her head proudly and held out one hand of Van Helsing, who took it in his, and after stooping and kissing it reverently, held it fast. The other hand was locked in that of her husband, who held his other arm thrown round her protectingly. After a pause in which she was evidently ordering her thoughts, she began. I took the sleeping draught which you had so kindly given me, but for a long time it did not act. I seemed to become more wakeful, and myriads of horrible fancies began to crowd in upon my mind, all of them connected with death and vampires, with blood and pain and trouble. Her husband involuntarily groaned as she turned to him and said lovingly, Do not fret, dear. You must be brave and strong and help me through this horrible task. If you only knew what an effort it is to me to tell of this fearful thing at all, you would understand how much I need your help. Well, I saw I must try to help the medicine to its work with my will if I was if it was to do me any good, so I resolutely set myself to sleep. Sure enough, a sleep must soon have come to me, for I remember no more. Jonathan coming in had not waked me, for he lay by my side when next I remember. There was in the room the same thin white mist that I had before noticed. But I forget now if you know of this. You will find it in my diary, which I shall show you later. I felt the same vague terror which had come to me before, and the same sense of some presence. I turned to wake Jonathan, but found that he slept so soundly that it seemed as if he was if it was he who had taken the sleeping draught, and not I. I tried, but I could not wake him. This caused me a great fear, and I looked round terrified. Then, indeed, my heart sank within me. Beside, oh, yeah, sorry, I lost my place. Okay, yeah. Then, indeed, my heart sank within me, beside the bed as if he had stepped out of the mist, or rather as if the mist had turned into his figure, for it had entirely disappeared. Stood a tall, thin man, all in black. I knew him at once from the description of the others. The waxen face, the high aquiline nose on which the light fell in a thin white line, the parted red lips, 
the sharp white teeth showing between, and the red eyes that I had seemed to see in the sunset on the windows of St. Mary's Church at at Whitby. I knew, too, the red scar on his forehead where Jonathan had struck him. For an instant, my heart stood still, and I would have screamed out, only that I was paralyzed. In the pause, he spoke in a sort of keen, cutting whisper, pointing as he spoke to Jonathan, Silence. If you make a sound, I shall take him and dash his brains out before your very eyes. I was appalled and was too bewildered to do or say anything. With a mocking smile, he placed one hand upon my shoulder, and holding me tight, bared my throat with the other, saying as he did so, First, a little refreshment to reward my exertions. You may as well be quiet. It is not the first time or the second that your veins have appeased my thirst. I was bewildered, and strangely enough, I did not want to hinder him. I suppose it is a part of the horrible curse that such is when his touch is on his victim. And oh my God, my God, pity me. He placed his reeking lips upon my throat. Her husband groaned again. She clasped his hand harder and looked at him pityingly, as if he were the injured one, and went on. I felt my strength fading away, and I was in a half-swoon. How long this horrible thing lasted I know not, but it seemed that a long time must have passed before he took his foul, awful, sneering mouth away. I saw it drip with the fresh blood. The remembrance seemed for a while to overpower her, and she drooped and would have sunk down but for her husband's sustaining arm. With a great effort she recovered herself and went on. Then he spoke to me mockingly, And so you, like the others, would play your brains against mine. You would help these men to haunt me and frustrate me in my designs. You know now, and they know in part already, and will know in full before long, what it is to cross my path. They should have kept their energies for use closer to home. Whilst they played wits against me, against me, who commanded nations and intrigued for them and fought for them hundreds of years before they were born. I was countermining them. And you, their best beloved one, are now to me flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, kin of my kin, my bountiful wine-press for a while, and shall be later on my companion and my helper. You shall be avenged in turn, for not one of them but shall minister to your needs. But as yet you are to be punished for what you have done. You have aided in thwarting me. Now you shall come to my call. When my brain says, Come to you, you shall cross land or sea to do my bidding. And to that end, this. With that he pulled open his shirt, and with his long, sharp nails opened a vein in his breast. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other seized my neck and pressed my mouth to the wound, so that I must either suffocate or swallow some of the... Oh, my God, my God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve such a fate? I who have tried to walk in meekness and righteousness all my days. God pity me. Look down on a poor soul in worse than mortal peril, and in mercy pity those to whom she is dear. And she began to rub her lips as though to cleanse them from pollution. As she was telling her terrible story, the eastern sky began to quicken, and everything became more and more clear. 
Harker was still and quiet, but over his face, as the awful narrative went on, came a gray look which deepened and deepened in the morning light, till when the first red streaks of the coming dawn shot up, the flesh stood darkly out against the whitening hair. We've arranged that one of us is to stay within call of the unhappy pair till we can meet together and arrange about taking action. Of this I am sure. The sun rises today on no more miserable house in all the great round of its daily course. Chapter 22 Jonathan Harker's Journal 3 October As I must do something or go mad, I write this diary. It is now six o'clock, and we are to meet in the study in half an hour and take something to eat. For Dr. Van Helsing and Dr. Seward are agreed that if we do not eat, we cannot work our best. Our best will be, God knows, required today. I must keep writing at every chance, for I dare not stop to think. All big and little must go down. Perhaps at the end the little things may teach us most. The teaching, big or little, could not have landed Mina or me anywhere worse than we are today. However, we must trust and hope. Poor Mina told me just now, with the tears running down her dark cheek, down her dear cheeks, that it is in trouble and trial that our faith is tested, that we must keep on trusting, and that God will aid us up to the end. The end. Oh my God, what end? To work. To work. When Dr. Van Helsing and Dr. Seward had come back from seeing poor Enfield, we went gravely into what was to be done. First, Dr. Seward told us that when he and Dr. Van Helsing had gone down to the room below, they had found Renfield lying on the floor, all in a heap. His face was all bruised and crushed in, and the bones of the neck were broken. Dr. Seward asked the attendant who was on duty in the passage if he had heard anything. He said that he had been sitting down, he confessed to half-dozing, when he heard loud voices in the room, and then Renfield had called out loudly several times, God! 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 After that, there was a sound of falling, and when he entered the room, he found him lying on the floor, face down, just as the doctors had seen him. Van Helsing asked if he had heard voices, or a voice, and he said he could not say, that at first it had seemed to him as if there were two, but as there was no one in the room, it could have been only one. He could swear to it, if required, that the word God was spoken by the patient. Dr. Seward said to us when we were alone, that he did not wish to go into the matter. The question of an inquest had to be considered, and he would never do to put forward the truth, as no one would believe it. As it was, he thought that on the attendant's evidence, he could give a certificate of death by misadventure and falling from bed. In case the coroner should demand it, there would be a formal inquest, necessarily to the same result. When the question began to be discussed as to what should be our next step, the very first thing we decided was that Mina should be in full confidence, that nothing of any sort, no matter how painful, should be kept from her. She herself agreed as to its wisdom, and it was pitiful to see her so brave and yet so sorrowful, and in such a depth of despair. There must be no concealment, she said. Alas, we have had too much already. And besides, there is nothing in all the world that can give me more pain than I have already endured, than I suffer now. Whatever may happen, it must be of new hope or of new courage to me. Van Helsing was looking at her fixedly as she spoke, and said, suddenly but quietly, But dear Madame Mina, are you not afraid, not for yourself, but for others from yourself, after what has happened? 
Her face grew set in its lines, but her eyes shone with the devotion of a martyr as she answered, Ah, no, for my mind is made up. To what? he asked gently, whilst we were all very still, for each in our own way we had a sort of vague idea of what she meant. Her answer came with direct simplicity as though she were simply stating a fact. Because if I find in myself, and I shall watch keenly for it, a sign of harm to any that I love, I shall die. You would not kill yourself? he asked hoarsely. Oh, I would. If there were no friend who loved me, who would save me such a pain and so desperate an effort. She looked at him meaningfully as he, as she spoke. He was sitting down, but now he rose and came close to her and put his hand on her head as he said solemnly, My child, there is such as one. I am completely tongue-tied. My child, there is such an one, if it were for your good. For myself, I could hold it in my account with God to find such an euthanasia for you, even at this moment if it were best, nay, were it safe. But my child... For a moment he seemed choked, and a great sob rose in his throat. He gulped it down and went on. There are here some who would stand between you and death. You must not die. You must not die by any hand but least of all by your own. Until the other, who has fouled your sweet life, is true dead, you must not die. For if he is still with the quick undead, your death would make you even as he is. No, you must live. You must struggle and strive to live, though death would seem a boon unspeakable. You must fight death himself, though he come to you in pain or in joy, by the day or the night, in safety or in peril. On your living soul I charge you that you do not die, nay, nor think of death, till this great evil be past. The poor deer grew white as death, and shock and shivered, as I have seen a quicksand shake and shiver at the incoming of the tide. We were all silent. We could do nothing. At length she grew more calm, and turning to him said, sweetly, but oh, so sorrowfully, as she held out her hand, I promise you, my dear friend, that if God will let me live, I shall strive to do so. Till, if it may be in his good time, this horror may have passed away from me. She was so good and brave that we all felt that our hearts were strengthened to work and endure for her. And we began to discuss what we were to do. I told her that she was to have all the papers in the safe and all the papers or diaries and phonographs we might hereafter use and was to keep the record as she had done before. She was pleased with the prospect of anything to do, if pleased could be used in connection with so grim an interest. I think that's a good place to stop. I just want to point out, A, I'm really glad that everybody realizes how dumb it was to keep Mina out of the loop, how unproductive and endangering that was. I'm glad they figured that out. I know, like, I've read this, oh, God, so many times. I know that they get there. It's always so frustrating to me to, like, sit around and wait for them to get there. Oh, well. Okay. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.